Hey folks, I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. I hope all is well with you. This is the second episode in our series called Floridians, where we talk to some amazing Floridians about the things they are doing to support their communities. Today, we're chatting with a former guest and friend of the show, Craig Pittman. Craig is a reporter, columnist, and author who I have admired for a long time. His most recent book, Cattail, was released in January. It's the true story of a group of scientists and experts as they desperately work to preserve the population of our state animal, the Florida panther. The book has received national praise from the Wall Street Journal and Scientific American. I'd like to heap on some more praise. It's now one of my favorite books. Obviously, I have a predilection for all of its subjects, being that the Florida panther is my favorite animal, but it is truly a wonderfully written book, full of fascinating sidebars and incredible characters. These characters carry us through the story and lead to some of the most exciting turns in the narrative. There are some characters that really stand out. There's Roy McBride, a big cat hunter from Texas who aided in the collection of the panthers for the study. There's Deborah Jansen, a biologist with an expertise in the Big Cypress Preserve. There's Chris Belden, who was the Florida Panther Recovery Coordinator for over a decade. There are heroes and villains, twists and turns, and hope at the core. To celebrate his book, I gave Craig Pittman a call on a rainy morning to chat all things Florida and Panther and Florida Panther. So for a story like this, specifically this story, where did you begin? What was sort of step one of, of, of the conception of this book? Well, um, it, it, you know, I've been, I covered environmental stories for the Times for uh, 21 years, and, and so I've written a lot of panther stories over the years, and every time I would write one, I would think, wow, this would make a great book someday. You know, you got these fascinating offbeat characters, you've got uh, lots of twists and turns in the plot that you know, know you can't see coming, there's a lot of drama, Lord knows. But I didn't have an ending. Uh, you know, at that point, we didn't know what was going to happen with the Panthers. And then finally, about three years ago, I got an, a, a good ending, a hopeful ending to the story. And I said, okay, now I can sit down and write this. And and so I started, you know, pulling together the book proposal and everything. And um, I, think, I think, especially these days, especially what's been going on in the world, people want to uh, a book with a hopeful ending, you know, that not necessarily happily ever after, but it's something that says, you know, things are improving and, and, and there may be, you know, there may be a brighter day ahead. And I think that's part of the appeal of the book to, to a lot of folks that have read it. Do you think it would have been harder to pull together a story if you had found an ending, but it wasn't so hopeful, maybe a bleaker ending? Would it, would, would you have been less encouraged to sort of find that ending? I think so. Cause I mean, uh, just the whole, the whole tenor of the times is people are looking for something that gives them some hope, something that is not so incredibly downbeat, or at least offer them some things that they can do themselves to try and provide for a better future. And when my first book came out, Paving Paradise, that which I covered with a guy named Matt Waite, our last chapter was to give people ways they, that the system could be fixed, ways to make the situation better in order to save wetlands and so I didn't see a way to do that with the panther story uh, you know basically all we can do to save panthers is you know donate money for research and don't drive so fast when you're in panther <laughs> habitat uh, but um, and I don't want to give, a, give away the ending but the ending I got was a very hopeful one and um, 
and I, you know, the minute I saw it, I said, okay, now I can, now I can write this because people will respond in sort of a, a hopeful uh, last chapter. You've written a couple books now, and 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 all of them sort of have a little bit of that tint to it, a little bit of, a, of that optimism to it. Do you hope that is that a hope of your books that when someone picks it up and reads it, whether they're from Florida or not, they can sort of walk away with a feeling, walk away with a specific feeling, and 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 how do you sort of achieve that in your writing? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I've written five books. I would guess one of them has a kind of a downbeat ending, but it's a kind of an ironic ending. So I. You know, that, that's okay. That one's the sin of scandal. Uh, manatee Insanity ends on sort of a hopeful note because the number of manatees had increased right. and some new measures were in place to protect them. Oh, Florida, I think, doesn't end so much on a hopeful note as a, as a snarky one. Yeah. <laughs> you know, come on down and bring your money. Uh, uh, but the feeling I want people to have when I write these books is I want them to recognize what a special place this is. Uh, how unusual it is, how interesting. Uh, um, I've got a sort of a half-hearted lobbying effort to change our state motto from the Sunshine State to the most interesting state because I think that's more. That's accurate. pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we get we get more rainfall than Seattle. You know, so yeah. we can't really call ourselves the Sunshine, Sunshine state. state. Yeah. Um, but the most interesting state, I don't think anybody's going to challenge us for that one. And so, you know, but but people regard us as the punchline state. But this was the argument I made in in oh, Florida was, you know, we, there's a lot more going on here than just the stuff you read about Florida men, you know, waving a machete around while naked. Uh, you know, it's, there's, a, there's a lot of really fascinating, interesting stuff. We've got this award-winning state park system. We've got gorgeous beaches that are often ranked among the best in the world. Uh, and some really interesting and fascinating people doing some interesting and fascinating things. Uh, you know, um, uh, Sylvia Earle, for instance, the, the acclaimed oceanographer. Oh yeah, uh, she grew up in Dunedin and fell, fell in love with the Gulf of Mexico, um, and that's what led her on the path to where, where she is now. Uh, John Adonassoff, the guy who invented the first computer, uh, grew up in Polk County and was fascinated with his dad's slide rule because his dad worked at a, a phosphate mining facility. So you know, those are stories that get lost in in the rush to laugh at Florida, but. I think people need to give Florida to do that. We produce a lot of really fascinating stuff with fascinating people. And I guess that's what I'm going for is to just sort of tell people there's more to Florida culture and history than, you know, Jimmy Buffett and flip flops and margaritas. <laughs> One of the things that uh, I think sort of shines through in, in Cattail is the snarkiness that you mentioned. There, there are certain chapters and paragraphs that start with or even just like at the ends of sentences you you manage to pop in a, a joke or a witticism or a your opinion in, in a very funny way how do you sort of balance a, a story that is so numbers and and fact and character heavy and and include some of that flavor and make it not just a sort of report on on the events how, how do you include well, some of your personality in that I think you have to, I mean, part of it is I'm just a natural smart aleck, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> I can't help myself. Uh, but part of it, too, is, I mean, if you think about it, this is a book about genetics and about, and about um, uh, reviving the gene pool of a, of a, of a particular type of, of subspecies of the puma, which, when you put it that way, sounds so boring, I'm putting myself to sleep just talking about it. <laughs> But if, if you're able to tell it with some humor and focus on the interesting characters who are involved, uh, 
uh, and and like I said, the many twists and turns of the plot. Then suddenly it becomes, you know, a detective story, uh, uh, a a story about wildlife, a story about Florida development, and and what's worth saving and what we can do to save it. And I think those are very compelling things for people to read. And I think the humor helps. It helps to get them past the difficult scientific part of it. You know, I'm discussing. Uh, you know, so so when it comes up about some of the panthers having a kink in their tails and whether that's a characteristic or a genetic defect you know then i make a joke about you know let's talk about kinks yeah it is one of the most fun parts of the novel and all of craig's writing really there's a lot of varying tone because there's a lot of varying narratives within this complicated history craig tells the story by not ignoring all of the various genres within it There's the lone cowboy on an adventure in the desert. There's the madcap group of scientists trudging through the swamp. There's the political thrill of Florida's bureaucrats. And there's the heartbreaking drama of the scientists' repeated failures. Craig himself is a character in some parts of the book, finding himself in the company of unusual figures and in dusty basements with bizarre collections. The book weaves through these styles with ease, carrying us from one moment to the next by celebrating how complicated history can be. The moment I most enjoyed of this is when Craig details the story of Roy McBride, the hunter who worked with the scientists. Near the middle of the book, he goes out to capture some Texas big cats in order to mate them with Florida panthers. Craig frames this like a cowboy adventure, save for one detail. Yes, and it's a, you know, so it's like a western. So I describe these scenes like you're watching a, a western on TV. You know, because you got the guy in the in the cowboy hat, and he's out in this western landscape, and he's all alone out there. And I said, you know, but instead of, but then you sort of undercut it by saying, but instead of riding some noble white steed, he's on a mule, and, <laughs> and the mule is blindfolded. <laughs> <You know? laughs> to me, you know, on the one hand, this is the really low point emotionally in the story, where the people in charge of saving the panther realize they have screwed up, and they're right on the verge of, of condemning them to extinction and they're trying this one last thing that they aren't really sure will work and has never been tried before. But on the other hand, it's also the funniest chapter in the book to me yeah. because McBride, he, when I called it, you know, like I, I started this book thinking I already knew most of the story and, and as I wrote it, I realized there are part there are gaps in here. And that was a big one where nobody, nobody had ever asked Roy before, what did you do to go get the Texas Cougars? Which are sort of, that's sort of the turning point in the story. And Roy said, oh, well, funny story. Let me tell you about that. <laughs> so he launched into this story. And uh, it was, he had me on the floor laughing. It was so funny. And I have to say, Roy is not a guy who likes to talk about himself. He's very, very terse. And um, just to get him to talk about this, he, didn't, he at first did not want to talk to me about the things that went on. And I said, look, Roy, it's not that you're a, uh, I'm going to depict you as a hero. So it's, you're a witness. You saw stuff nobody else saw and experienced things nobody else experienced. And if you don't tell me what you saw and what you experienced, then I can't tell the whole story. And I want to tell people the whole story of, of the Panther. And he said, that got him. He said, okay, all right, I'll, I'll talk to you. Sure. So, and I'm thank God he did because... Oh my God, it's so funny. <laughs> Speaking of sort of McBride and, and some of the characters there, there are so many people and, and places um, that are featured in it. What was this? 
was was there a specific visit or person that you spoke to that really stands out as a as a really like fascinating like the most exciting person you got to speak to for the story? I don't know about exciting, but the most fascinating uh, personal thing I experienced was going well. There were two of them. One was when I went to the Florida Museum of Natural History and talked to the two women working in the basement on the panther carcasses. You know, the 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 panther dies. The veterinarian looks it over to then examines it to see what killed it, and then they send the carcass along to the Florida Museum of Natural History, where they do all sorts of things to it, including saving the pelt in this big closet full of pelts that looks like Corella Deville's coat closet, <laughs> and 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 then saving the bones in these boxes that stretched like air, like you've wandered into the warehouse at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, and just that was to me was absolutely fascinating. It's this big room full of this catch-all of, you know, bones and pelts and, and, and all kinds of other amazing artifacts. And then the story that the one woman told me about going around to all the different museums around the country to check the colors of the panther skins that they had on display there to, to examine, you know, what they look like and, and whether they had these same genetic markers in them. It was just, just amazing to me. And then the other thing was, and I kind of blundered into this, I went. I heard that there was a uh, meeting at this uh, at the Florida Wildlife Research Institute, which is here in St. Pete, where they were discussing panther population and how to gauge panther population. And I heard Roy was going to be there. And this was before I'd ever met him or, or had ever seen him, but I'd heard about him. And I thought I got I got to see this guy in action. And so I went and sat in the back of the room and watched Roy give this room full of biologists and computer modelers this great slideshow, you know, where, you know, he's, he's like he wandered in from a Western picture, but he's up there giving a PowerPoint, talking about all the, all the paw prints and the other ways. And then in, in trying to, and then the other people in the room included Chris Belden, who was the first biologist to head up the panther program for the state, uh, Deborah Jansen, the big cypress biologist who's been working on panther issues since 1981, and uh, Daryl Land, who's who's currently in charge of the panther program. And just in talking to, I got so I got to meet them and talk to them for the first time. And then some of them went to lunch with me the next day, or rather, I tagged along with them going to lunch. <laughs> <laughs> and, and it was it was Roy and Chris Belden and Deborah, all of whom had known each other since 1981, and so they had that sort of easy familiarity. It comes from that, and, you know, there were some shared jokes that went right over my head. Um, but at one point, Roy took my notebook and actually drew a map for me of the remaining panther habitat and then drew another drew a marker on there of where some new development had been proposed that was right smack dab in the middle of it. And I mean, it's just, it's just a great experience being around these people and seeing the camaraderie among them and sort of absorbing that. But also, they said some amazing stuff that wound up you know getting into the book and led to them trusting me enough to talk to me more and longer and in more detail later on too they are that is so amazing you got to go to lunch with them and just sit and be with these people who've known each other for 30 plus years working on this yeah. like, crusade i mean that's that's amazing yeah no it was it was awesome i mean so you know um I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of what's sometimes called hanging out journalism, where you, yeah. you go and, and you just hang out and listen to people and occasionally pop in and ask a question, but otherwise just keep your mouth shut and your ears open. 
While there are many heroes in this story, there are also a handful of antagonists to the protection of the Panthers. Craig Pittman did countless hours of research into the writings and work of everyone involved, and one figure emerged as a central and controversial character. His name was David Mayer. He was a biologist who, for a long time, was the foremost panther expert in the country. After working with the team to protect panthers for years, he wound up leaving that behind and began advising developers who sought to destroy panther habitat. For many on the panther protection team, it felt like a betrayal. Mayer was already problematic for the team, having fudged protection numbers and research to make the program look better despite its failings. Now, it felt as though he had turned on his crusade. Craig states it best in the book, quote, The human mind has an almost infinite capacity for self-justification. Nobody wakes up in the morning and thinks, Today, I will betray all my ideals in exchange for money. End quote. I asked Craig about how he characterizes someone so beloved and so reviled. I really wrestled with, with Dave Mayer's depicting Dave Mayer because he is he is still a hero to a lot of people and he is still a villain to a lot of people and he's dead so I can't interview him and ask him about those things so I had to go back and comb through all of the writings he left behind and uh, all of the interviews he gave his various scientific papers that he wrote and and also and I was very fortunate in this uh, a, a, a graduate student had interviewed him for about three hours and gave me a transcript and said, you can use three quotes from the transcript. <laughs> okay, okay, I better choose wisely. Um, um, and so I feel like, uh, I, you know, so I, the way he's depicted in the book is he starts out as a hero and then changes sides and, and, was, and was very strongly resistant to uh, any suggestion that the Panthers had genetic problems that were limiting them, and he kept insisting the problem was habitat, even as, as he was working for developers who were destroying the habitat. So um, some of his friends have made it very clear to me they don't like the book, and they don't like how he was depicted in the book, Sure, and that's fine, that's fine. But I feel like I gave him a fair shake, and or certainly did my best to give him a fair shake, and to depict him in an accurate way. And uh, and, and so that some of that struggle that I had is in that that line that you mentioned of how how do you go from being you know Mr. Panther I'm the guy in charge of saving them to working for developers and helping them get permits to wipe out panther habitat and and going against other panther biologists who say this is wrong I mean how do you do that and, and in that lunch that I had with Roy and and Deborah and and Chris uh, they were very circumspect about talking about him and even Roy was like you know that's the guy whose name we don't mention wow, <laughs> <You know>? wow. <laughs> and that was where he said the thing that's in there about Roy saying you know science never punishes its own that he never really got the comeuppance they felt like he deserved wow um, for the things that he did and for for purposely skewing some of his scientific findings in a way that benefited developers Writing that part was the most difficult part of the book, I would say, was just trying to deal with that. And and also the other sort of, I guess you'd say, villain of the piece, uh, to me the bigger villain, uh, in a way, Sam Hamilton, who was the head of the Atlanta office of the Fish and Wildlife Service, yeah, that... and kept shooting, down, kept shooting down efforts by his own biologist to protect panther habitat, and didn't see himself that way. Absolutely did not see himself that way. And him I got to interview very briefly, um, 
uh, at a conference in a very, very memorable setting where the a fire alarm was going off in the middle of the conference, and so everybody evacuated to the hallway. And I said, while we're out here, <laughs> let me ask you about this. And the Panther fight is not the extent of Craig's writing. He is known, especially in the last few years, as a sort of scribe of weird Florida. In an honored tradition in the vein of Barry and Hyacin, Craig celebrates Florida at its finest and strangest and most wonderful. His book, Oh Florida, was an inspiration for this show's existence. So what motivates a writer to pivot into celebrating the offbeat culture and history of this, our favorite state? Oh my gosh, everything. I mean, it, it's it, this state is endlessly fascinating. I mean, when I finished the manuscript for O Florida and turned it in, the editor said, this is great, but it's 100 pages too long. <laughs> so I had to cut, I had to cut it. <laughs> I, had to cut out all, I had to cut out stuff about the skunk ape and the guy who had a romance with a dolphin and, you know, just all kinds of stuff like that. And so uh, people have joked with me that I have enough left over to make another book. I'm like, well, maybe not. But I mean, that's the, that's the kind of thing. There are more and more stories to tell uh, than what I've put in five books. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm already working on two more. It's just, I, you know, I just hope I live long enough to be able to cover enough of the subject to give people a full flavor of, uh, of what a great place this is to live and how, uh, just how amazing it is every day to, you know, to open the paper or turn on the radio or turn on the news and go, you know, holy cow, uh, you know, <laughs> a homeowner's association is fighting with a mermaid. <laughs> yeah, because they, a... Don't want her wearing her, they don't want her wearing her tail in the community swimming pool. And Craig, of course, is always writing. His new gig is writing a weekly column for the Florida Phoenix. He's an environmental reporter, and in the last few weeks, he's already covered everything from the BP oil spill to overpriced toll roads to the plight of iguanas in our state. He's working on a book that is a collection of his columns from the past several years called The State You're In. He also shared some of his other next big projects with me, and I'll just say this. I'm very excited. When someone picks up one of his books, he hopes that anyone, but especially a Floridian, walks away with a sense of pride that this place has meaning and value. Especially with cattail, which to me is, you know, that's our state animal we're talking about here, and look what a fascinating story it's got. And with O'Florida, I was trying to make the point of, yeah, we can all laugh about a lot of the stories that come out of Florida, but also recognize that there's some really amazing and, and cool stuff that happened here too, and we should recognize that as well. I mean, if you think about it, probably the most one of the most significant things that happened in terms of uh, battling segregation and changing uh, the way America treats minorities happened because it happened with the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which got passed because of protests in St. Augustine. So, I mean, do people realize that? Do, they pay, do people know that? I don't think they do. I don't think they re remember that. They, you say civil rights, they may think of Birmingham, you know, Rosa Parks bus boycott, etc. But St. Augustine actually, in a way, was more important than all of those because it led to a change in the law. So um, uh, I think people are just so used to thinking of Florida in terms of, ha ha, you know, uh, crazy people running around with machetes or samurai swords and not recognizing that, you know, we're a big influencer on the rest of the country and not just because we have 29 electoral votes. We have an influence on everything and the job is never done. Florida will always have an abundance of people ripping away at our environment and our culture, and there will always be an equal abundance of people toiling back. 
and whenever there are strange subcommittee meetings where biologists fight with developers, or wherever photographers bury themselves in the mud just to get a picture of a black bear, or wherever an animal-centric tourist trap opens along the Everglades, we are very lucky that Craig Pittman will be there. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you'd like to hear more from Craig, you have got to pick up some copies of his book, Cattail. It is such a wonderful read, and so are all of his other fantastic books. You can pick up your copy of that and all of his books at the link below. Also, read Craig's weekly column in the Florida Phoenix. They are always a joy. And if you want even more Craig, he was in my episode from this past season called After Hurricane Andrew. We talk about hurricanes and pythons. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco, and all of the photography used in the social media is from Lauren Nix. You can check out Lobo Loco's music at the link below, and you can find Lauren's work at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Her last name, Nix, is spelt N-I-X. You can follow the show on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod, and you can send me an email at WFMPod at gmail. You can also follow my personal account on Twitter, at WFMNick. Next week is a very special episode. I'm speaking with a very good friend of mine about an odd tradition that we have shared in together. We have a very funny history together, and I'd like to share some of our stories and how we turn those stories into art. Be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and please be well. Have a good week.